Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. In today's show, we'll meet hip-hop artists in Southwest Virginia. Genoa Davis, a.k.a. Genova, discovered rapping by way of poetry. I always wanted to sing, but I was also like a really shy kid. And poetry became uh, an outlet for me to get my feelings out. They used to rap about something and now they rap about nothing. But they nothing is something they And herbal remedies are experiencing a renaissance. But those remedies have been a tradition in Appalachia for centuries. Appalachia used to be the pharmacy of the United States. So that's always been part of who we are here. We just forgot it. And we'll remember a man who helped create the radio show Mountain Stage. Francis Fisher was an engineer and one of the masterminds who built the West Virginia Public Radio Network. I've known since I was 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 years old exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And here it is. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. When people talk about Appalachian music, banjos and fiddles are often the first thing to spring to mind. But what about hip hop? In the U.S., rap and hip-hop are usually associated with big cities like New York, L.A., and Atlanta. But hip-hop lives all over, including in small towns and hollers across Appalachia. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave spoke with a group of hip-hop artists in the coal fields of Wise County, Virginia. The group is drumming up attention for their music, but they're also supporting other artists in the scene. Picture a large tent in the middle of a dark field, surrounded by mountains. Hundreds of people are packed under, dancing to the beats of Valley Boy Music Group, a local hip-hop collective. There's neon lights, smoke machines, and glow paint flying all around. Genoa Davis, a.k.a. Genova, was one of the performers at the field party that night. I don't even know how we got there. There was like 400 people. It was crazy. Uh, <laughs> Genova's 25 and grew up in Big Stone Gap, a town of around 5,000 in Wise County, Virginia. My family's all from Big Stone. Actually, the house I live in um, was my great-grandmother's and her mom's before that. Genova discovered rapping by way of poetry. I always wanted to sing, but I was also like a really shy kid, and poetry became uh, an outlet for me to get my feelings out. In college, some of Genova's cousins started making music together as Valley Boy Music Group. They knew he wrote poetry, so one day they asked him to write and record a verse on one of their songs. They used to rap about something and now they rap about nothing, but that nothing is something that everybody is bumping. I felt like from the get-go, I've always like had something to say. So it was just like, uh, it was rewarding because like I was like, wow, I want to keep doing this. As a rapper, Genova writes a lot about his own life. And music is also a way for him to talk about the changes he wants to see in the world, like an end to mass incarceration and police brutality. I talk about a lot of things going on in society and like being a black person in society, like in America, has never been easy. They killing us and I'm stressed. The Wise County hip-hop tradition goes back farther than Genova and the Valley Boys. One of Genova's cousins and fellow Valley Boy is Raekwon Mitchell, a.k.a. R.K. Mitch. His dad's friends were big into freestyling. 
And when he was a budding rapper, RK Mitch remembers listening in as they improvised lyrics over beats. They were like, okay, let me see what you got, you know? And I was like, oh, so I went to pull out my little notepad and they were like, no, 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 I want to hear what you can just come off the top with. I just looked at him, I was like, oh, no, I, you know, I can't do that. I'm not a freestyler. I, I don't do that. I write. R.K. Mitch prefers to write out lyrics. And he never saw the older generation record anything. It was more about bragging rights among friends. With them, it was always just the energy of it, the, the love of the music and seeing their abilities to freestyle. And there was less of an emphasis on sharing it with a larger audience. I don't think many of them actually performed in this area, especially. There's not really a whole lot of places to perform. The Valley Boys have created their own performance spaces, like those field parties. They've improvised studios, too, out of dorm rooms, hotel rooms, bedrooms. We've been in situations where it's like, wow, you're really recording right here? And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, we're going to make it work somehow, I guess, you know. In Appalachian, Virginia... A lot of institutional support for music is targeted towards old-time country and bluegrass. So hip-hop communities have had to find ways to support themselves. Jared Sores is a photographer who's been documenting the hip-hop scene in another southwest Virginia town, Roanoke, since 2007. He says artists there had a similar way of making do or making it up. You know, it was very much like a DIY culture, like do-it-yourself mentality, like if it doesn't exist in Roanoke, we're just going to build it. And we're going to make do with what we have, and we're going to make it, you know, the best possible. Genova explains that he sees his music as a way to bring more material support to other hip-hop artists. I'm doing it so I can get the resources I need for the people I care about and for the community that I care about in this area. Last year, Genova won a grant to help him produce new music. The first thing he did was buy new equipment for several other hip-hop artists. One of those was Kelly Thompson, a.k.a. Pookie. He's helped others get microphones and interfaces and other gear that's necessary for recording. Dr. A.D. Carson is a hip-hop artist and an assistant professor of hip-hop at the University of Virginia. He explains that helping out the folks back home is part of the hip-hop tradition. Thinking about not just like shouting out home, but also how do we bring the the people from where we're from into the space where they might also have access to those resources. In Pookie's third floor apartment in downtown Wise, Virginia, Genova's helped Pookie turn his spare bedroom into a makeshift studio. A mattress is propped up against a wall to muffle the street sounds below. Pookie sits at a computer that Genova bought with the grant money and starts making a beat. So I'm going to start with a nice little chord. We're going to put a little E minor 7th here. Pretty nice. I like that. He and Genova have been friends since middle school, and they've been making music together for a couple of years now. Here's Genova. Whenever he makes a beat, like, and if he's had me in mind, like, he'll put, like, these little sounds here and there. And I'm like, ooh, like, <laughs> he put that in there just for me, like. Pookie was inspired to learn to make beats by watching Genova and some local producers at work. I was just totally in, 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 impressed. I was like, wow, this is how music is made. Long 
Long term, Genova hopes to help establish cultural arts centers in the area to better support artists of all kinds. I feel like there's way more artistic individuals in this area that we know. They just like don't have the resources to produce their art. If I know I got it, don't you try to stop me. Won't you celebrate me for this in the coffin? For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Wise County, Virginia. I like how I've been moving. I like how she look at me. Don't need a light to do it. I'm kind of bright into it. This song is called Celebrate. It was produced by Pookie, and it's off Genova's latest EP, 25 to Life. It's available on most streaming services, but we'll also have the link on our website, wvpublic.org. Nicole's story is part of our Inside Appalachia Folkways project, and it shows just one way that poetry is important to the lives of young people in Appalachia. Across the state line, another young man recently competed in a national poetry contest. Ben Long from Clarksburg, West Virginia, is one of nine national finalists to compete this year in Poetry Out Loud. It's a competition for high schoolers where they recite the words of classic poets. He's a senior at Notre Dame High School in Clarksburg. Eric Douglas spoke with Long to learn more about the program and how an unusual year of pre-recorded performances and masked audiences has made things different. Tell me what it's like to to recite poetry. What what do you have to do? I mean, there's no props. There's just you on stage and, and you and your voice. Tell me what that's like. We really go in and do the work to find, you know, what's the right speed to present this? What is the emotional depth of the poem? You know, where do I inflect? Where do I uh, where do I soften? It's really it's like making a roadmap. And you do that so that you can get really, really familiar with the poem. And then it's sort of like every performance when you're on stage where you do all this work so that when you get up there and you're ready to present, it, it happens through you. It happens naturally. When you're on stage, when you're performing, are you envisioning yourself as the poet, as, as a character in the poem? How, how does that work? How does, what's, what's the process behind that? So in, in the poems that I'm doing, I try to figure out who is speaking, you know, who did the poet write the intended narrator to be, but also in my interpretation of the poem, who do I imagine the speaker to be? You know, for example, in the one poem that I did, A Blessing by James Wright, um, it starts off, he says, just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota. It's as if he's telling a story. So in order for myself to be able to get into that perspective, I sort of imagine that I'm telling the story to a group of friends. You do a contemporary poem, but you also do, do a, an older poem, a, like a 19th century poem. What's yeah. the greatest challenge for you in all that? Oh, well, I would say that uh, some of the 19th century poetry can be pretty challenging. I have a sort of an advantage, not really an advantage, but um, because I do Shakespeare, so I have experience with going in and line by line, swapping out words I don't understand and figuring out what things mean. But I think there is a challenging aspect to figuring out um, what the emotional ride of a poem is supposed to be like. A poem in general that you're speaking is, it's sort of like a roller coaster, you know? So there are, there are low parts, there are high, fast, intense parts, there are smooth, relaxing parts. Um, and it's about... It's really a game to try and find where do I speak softly? Where do I get intense? 
as a performer, I'm sure you feed off of the audience to a certain degree. I wonder if that doing a pre-recorded uh, talk it makes it any different or any more challenging for you. Well, it's definitely different. And in this year of COVID, like I, I've learned so much about, you know, how important the energy of an audience is. And even just with the masks, you know, how, how, how much value there is in a face. Um, and I think as a performer, it, it is definitely been a challenging year, not being able to have big audiences, not being able to see the faces of other performers. Um, but, you know, I'm lucky enough to work with a school and a program who has been willing to do everything they can to keep us on stage. Can you or would you please either recite or read uh, something for me? So this is An Autumn Sunset by Edith Wharton. Leaguered in fire, the wild black promontories of the coast extend their savage silhouettes. The sun in universal carnage sets and, halting higher, the motionless storm clouds mass their sullen threats like an advancing mob in sword points penned that bulked, yet stands at bay. Mid-zenith hangs the fascinated day, in windlustrated hollows crystalline, a wan Valkyrie whose wide pinions shine across the ensanguined ruins of the fray. And in her hand swings high o'erhead above the waster of war, the silver torchlight of the evening star wherewith to search the faces of the dead. Lagooned in gold, seem not those jetty promontories rather, the outposts of some ancient land forlorn, uncomforted of morn where old oblivions gather the melancholy unconsoling fold of all things that go early to death and mix no more. No more with life's perpetually awakening breath. Shall time not ferry me to such a shore? Over such sailless seas, to walk with hope's slain importunities in miserable marriage? Nay, shall not all things there be forgot save the sea's golden barrier and the black, close-crouching promontories? Dead to all shames forgotten of all glories. Shall I not wander there? A shadow shade, a specter self-destroyed, so purged of all remembrance and sucked back into the primal void that should we on the shore phantasmal meet, I should not know the coming of your feet. That was high school student Ben Long reading Edith Wharton's An Autumn Sunset. Long spoke with Eric Douglas about his experience as a national finalist for Poetry Out Loud. He competed in the championship last month against high school students from across the country. After the break, we'll hear an update on what public health officials are doing to help stop HIV from spreading in West Virginia's capital city. But the solution that's worked in other communities is now illegal. So what's going on here? We'll explain after the break. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. There's an HIV epidemic in West Virginia, and there's controversy over whether needle exchange programs are the answer. To understand what's going on, I want to give you some context from outside Appalachia. Six years ago, a rural Indiana county found itself in an outbreak of HIV. Local leaders in Scott County responded by setting up a needle exchange program in their community. And it helped. Public health officials studied the case, and they found that many Appalachian communities are also susceptible to the kinds of outbreaks that happened in Indiana. They also say the needle exchange program was the main reason Scott County was able to stop the spread of HIV. But now, that program is closing. Mitch Legan of WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, filed this story the day after local leaders in Scott County voted to end their needle exchange program. In 2015, tiny Scott County experienced what was called the worst outbreak of HIV in rural America. Then Indiana Governor Mike Pence said he had no choice but to support what became the first needle exchange program in the state. County Health Administrator Michelle Matern says cases of HIV and other illnesses caused by dirty needles plummeted when the exchange opened. So in 2015, about 95% of the cases were also co-infected with hepatitis C. All those cases back then were linked to injection drug use, sharing syringes with each other. In addition to providing IV drug abusers with a place to exchange their used needles for clean ones, the grant-funded clinic provides other health services, the overdose antidote naloxone, and a place for people with substance use disorder to connect with treatment for their disease. Rick Williams attended last night's meeting to say the program did just that for him. And you start to build a trust up to these people. If you're going to ask them for needles and stuff, you start to trust those ladies, and they've been there where you're at. But like the rest of the United States, Scott County still has an overdose problem. Commissioner Mike Jones says the access to needles is leading to more overdoses in the county. There's no bringing you back. I mean, there's, you can treat yourself for HIV, you can treat yourself for hepatitis C, but you can't treat yourself for dead. Jones and the other commissioner who voted to end the exchange say they can't live with a program that makes it easier to abuse drugs. I know people that are alcoholics, and I don't buy them a bottle of whiskey, and, and I have a hard time handing a needle to somebody that I know they're, they're going to hurt themselves with. Scott County health officials say they're dismayed at the decision, which requires them to phase out the needle exchange by the end of the year. But the commissioners have said they're interested in working with advocates to create a sort of drop-in center for users to visit at any time. It would provide similar service to the needle exchange, minus the needles. If we're going to take something away, possibly we can give something back. But health officials like Matern say that'll be a heavy lift, and funding for a center with all the necessary services would be hard to come by. And without a needle exchange, she says it probably won't be as effective. We hope we're wrong, but it's very, very likely in the, you know, experts from all over the world tell us, you know, this is probably going to be another outbreak without a storage service program. The Scott County commissioners could reinstate the needle exchange program at a later date if HIV cases spike again. But Matern says by then, it'd probably be too late. For NPR News, I'm Mitch Legan in Bloomington, Indiana. 
That story originally aired June 3rd on NPR's Morning Edition. We wanted to highlight what's been happening in Indiana because the situation in some ways mirrors another outbreak of HIV here in Appalachia. Kanawha County, West Virginia, currently has the most alarming HIV outbreak in the nation. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And like in Indiana, needle exchange programs here have become controversial. Amid public outcry, Kanawha County's health department closed the Charleston Needle Exchange Program in 2018. Then, earlier this year, West Virginia lawmakers passed a bill that more or less made needle exchange programs illegal. The law restricts how many needles can be distributed, and some say that puts up a lot of barriers to getting people tested for HIV. Well, now a small team from the CDC is spending time in Kanawha County studying the outbreak of HIV. They're trying to determine what could help stomp out this growing epidemic. June Leffler has more. In 2019, when Cabell County, West Virginia, documented 69 new cases of HIV, the CDC quickly came to help. There were a lot of people on the ground here. That's Dr. Michael Kelkenny, the director of the Cabell-Huntington Health Department, who says the CDC offered critical assistance to his department's efforts. They can bring whatever needs to be brought Nearly all of the new HIV cases in Cabell County were caused by intravenous drug use and needle sharing. They had a syringe service program already, but the CDC said it needed to be bigger, and the county took their advice. And everybody just uh, pulled together to offer all of the resources or all of the services that were going to help. Kilkenny was amazed by how CDC specialists could gain the trust of IV drug users, many whom are homeless, so quickly. Yeah, they're not from around here, but but they're so well-trained that, that they could talk to anybody probably anywhere in the world. New cases dropped from 69 in 2019 to 40 in 2020, and less than 10 so far this year. Kelkenny knows it's not over, but he says without the CDC, the outbreak might have never gotten under control. Now, another major city in the state is staring down the barrel of a similar crisis. Charleston has identified 89 new HIV cases since 2019, 66 of those among IV drug users. Christine Teague has worked with the HIV positive for 25 years, In the past, she says her patients at Charleston Area Medical Center's Ryan White Foundation were relatively stable, with secure housing and some income. But things have changed. Now her patients are among the most vulnerable in society, struggling with addiction and homelessness. It's just basic survival and um, accessing um, drugs so that they won't go into withdrawal and become sick. For people in such dire straits, preventing or treating HIV can be a low priority, and many of the folks who are turning up HIV positive don't have mailing addresses, cell phones, or reliable transportation. Others are intimidated by visiting a big hospital complex. Uh, We had one lady who didn't want to come in to an appointment a couple weeks ago because she hadn't been able to shower in two weeks and she was embarrassed. Comprehensive HIV treatment is available and the disease is no longer a death sentence, but it takes consistency to work. But once they understand that there's treatment for them and they're likely will do well, people are generally engaged in getting better. 
but meeting people where they are is slow work, and it takes a lot of resources. Back in February, the CDC offered to help. With a push from Charleston Mayor Amy Goodwin, the state requested an EPI-aid, an investigation followed by a rapid short-term assistance. In April, the CDC sent two specialists to Charleston for a three-month term. Now the CDC is sending reinforcements. A team of five to nine people will work in Charleston for four weeks, along with a host of experts working remotely. You know, they'll come in and study the situation and give us some guidance on how we can best move forward as a community. Ultimately, Teague and others hope that the additional expertise will lead to more testing, treatment, contact tracing, and prevention specific to Charleston's circumstances. If the dwindling HIV numbers in Cabell County are any indication, Charleston may be on its way to finding some relief from the worst of this crisis. For Appalachia Health News, I'm June Leffler. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Remedies are experiencing a renaissance, with industry trackers reporting an explosion in sales and prices last year. But those remedies have been a path to wellness and independence in Appalachia for centuries. Folkways reporter Heather Duncan has this story from Tennessee. Crystal Wilson's small garden beds and animal pens sprawl off both sides of a dirt drive on the side of a ridge in Rockford, south of Knoxville. She's been gardening and tending the herbs in her forest floor here for a quarter century. Wilson grew up in southwest Virginia, learning about wild plants on long walks with her father, who was a factory worker. Her grandparents made extra money gathering plants to sell at an herb house in Marion. It dried the herbs and sold the components to pharmacies. Appalachia used to be the pharmacy of the United States. You know, we would harvest the plants here, they go to compounding pharmacies, and that would make medicine. So folks could gather things and take them there and sell them to make extra money. So that's always been part of who we are here. We just forgot it. Wilson didn't forget. She learned even more about remedies from Appalachian women she taught to read as a literacy coach, her first job after graduating from college. Until the COVID-19 pandemic, Wilson sold home remedies from her farm or a farmer's market, mostly to women. Historically, women turned to herbs for health concerns like menopause and family planning. Today, they also want cures for other problems of our time, sleeplessness, anxiety, and depression. Wilson says elderberry syrup is often the gateway to trying other remedies. Here on Wilson's land, it's literally by the gate. Well, do you know what that is down there at the road? No. That's your first quiz. Come on, that one down there with the white blooms on it. Oh, yes. What is it? That's your elderberry, right? Well, that's that's a little bit of many. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's where we're going to start down here. What are we hearing? That's guineas. A flock of flustered guinea fowl follows Wilson as she winds among goat pens. The berries are a few months off, so today she's going to show me how to make a fever tincture by steeping elderberry flowers and honeysuckle in vodka. First, we have to find open blossoms like small lace doilies. After a hunt, she snaps some off and takes them to a metal bowl of water. We have a clean jar. I try to look for bugs. We're going to wash it off. She gestures to the huge containers built onto wooden platforms at each corner of the house. This is rainwater from that barrel. Wilson values not only tradition, 
but also what science teaches about conservation, climate change, and healing. As a diabetic, she depends on modern medicine and emphasizes that herbal remedies are not a replacement for it. She's even taught nurses how to avoid interactions between home remedies and prescriptions. For a tincture, you know, it's a plant and alcohol base. I usually use potato vodka because a lot of folks got weed allergies. So now we're going to take our potato vodka and cover this up. When someone buys a tincture, Wilson personalizes the dosing based on their age, weight, and medical history. She's aware of modern challenges. We've got a lot of opioid addictions, so, you know, you don't want to give somebody struggling with that an alcohol. So I'll use glycerin or I'll use even apple cider vinegar for someone like that. I will put this in a windowsill and I will shake it or walk by it every day. And then about six to eight weeks, I'll strain it and put it in an amber-colored little dropper bottles. So everything is slow about this, from the plants to the medicine. Nothing's fast. There's wisdom in that. Demand for that wisdom has come full circle. Wilson says suburban enthusiasm for traditional remedies is actually driving more Appalachians back to them. It's so wonderful to see people, I know that, to have that light bulb come on again. Jill Richards reflects the newer trend of college-educated suburban women making herbal remedies. She's a mother of six living on the outskirts of Knoxville. I think definitely through the years there's been more of an uptick in just regular suburban moms wanting to do things naturally. Richards turned to making home remedies 25 years ago when her first baby was born, learning recipes from books, her chiropractor, and other moms. They'd make a social event of concocting salve and diaper rash cream while their toddlers played. As her kids aged, Richards came to rely on other remedies. I have fire cider and I drink it every day during the winter and I think it gets rid of anything. On her counter is a big glass container with a spigot. It holds a light amber liquid thick with white fragments and flower-shaped pepper slices. So you take horseradish root, onions and garlic, habanero peppers, some herbs and spices and things like that and then put them down in apple cider vinegar and let it ferment for like four weeks and then you just drink it. So this is it. I keep my little shot glasses over here. And you just pour it and drink. Yeah. And it is very hot. But I am telling you, I don't think anything bad could live near you if you drink that. Richard sells elderberry syrup, which has gained mainstream popularity for warding off flu and colds. Some medical research seems to show it can strengthen immune response and shorten illness. She puts the word out to friends on Facebook when she cooks a batch from dried berries ordered online. Richard says herbal remedies are part of a holistic approach to health. It's interesting to me that we call them alternative because this was what people used to heal for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, this was the original medicine, plants and berries and oils and extracts. Modern women like Richard's can now learn the skills in formal classes. Ladies from a local red hat society are perched on stools around a bar in a greenhouse, clinking ceramic teacups. They've just had a workshop on herbal tea at Aaron's Meadow Herb Farm in the rolling fields of Clinton. The class was taught by farm owner Kathy Burke Mahalzo, whose customers are mostly from Knoxville. She says interest in herbal remedies reflects the broader trend of wanting to know where our food and medicine come from. That went into overdrive during the coronavirus pandemic. Classes stopped, but some online buyers were hoarding immune boosters like dried elderberry and echinacea. Mahalzo quit selling more than a bag at a time. 
but she says the pandemic brought more people to value gardening and self-sufficiency. I think it did make people think, especially when, you know, stores were closed and restaurants were closed. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, if I did have, let's say, an injury or an illness, what would I do if I couldn't get to the store for these store-bought medications? I want to know what I could grow and use right out of my backyard if I had a stomach ache, my child couldn't sleep, we have a small burn. I think people realized that they were dependent on store-bought things and maybe they didn't have to be. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Duncan. The pandemic made it extremely hard for businesses to stay afloat over the past year. Nearly a quarter of small businesses nationwide were closed as recently as February. That's according to a report from Facebook and the Small Business Roundtable. But a historic West Virginia glassblowing company has managed to stay open. Blinko Glass is based in Milton, West Virginia. Initially, the company took a huge hit and had to lay off nearly all of its employees. But thanks to a federal loan and some clever marketing, they've rehired almost everyone back and had one of their most profitable years in decades. Unexpectedly, Blanco's comeback involved a collaboration with a graphic design artist based in Morgantown. Liz Pavlovic is regionally known for their creations focusing on cryptids. Mythical characters like Bigfoot, Mothman, and the Flatwoods Monster a West Virginia cryptid that's thought to be green with a fiery red head. Reporter Molly Bourne recently wrote an article about it for the Washington Post. Here she is. So how are all these things kind of connected? So there's a 20-something guy working at Blanco. He got the job shortly before the pandemic began last year. He was a fan of Liz's work, and there was talk of introducing a cryptid series as a way to continue to sell glass to a different subset of buyers, right? Like that, you know, people may have associated glass with something, Blinko glass and and other glass companies across the region as something that maybe their grandmother had. Um, I remember seeing Blinko in my grandmother's house growing up, right? So he was a fan of Liz's work and contacted them on Instagram and said, Hey, like there's talk of maybe doing this cryptid series. Like, would you be interested in they, this, this young man, Alex made the connection that brought Liz to Blanco where they use an existing design that had been, I think it was an old decanter uh, or some piece from you know, so I don't even know when it was from, but, uh, and Liz was, he sort of drew inspiration from those designs and their own work to come up with this, this next iteration of the Flatwoods monster. And what's really wild is, I, I guess, just the numbers. I mean, it was a really popular item. Yeah, they sold a bunch. They had a limited run, but they did, you know, exhaust that run really quickly. And now they're thinking about what might be the next monster in the series. Although Liz is just finished up a West Virginia Day piece that's uh, a ode to the ramp. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah, so they're still working with, with Blanco. Blanco, um, the whole idea uh, that was 
that has been kicked around was, is there a way to work with West Virginia artists to combine their talents with the talents of these lifers at Blinko? And there are so many talented people there. I first went there in 2019 and was just really struck by how these, these artisans just have this dedication to a craft that they have perfected over some of them decades. And it's a really special place. You know, they generally do tours there. You can even go in in the hot shop. That's what they call it, where the, um, glass is actually made. And, And sometimes they'll let you try your hand at it. There's just so much support for learning. You know, it's something like these guys know how to make this stuff, but it's not something they don't want to share. In fact, they do want to share and they are eager to to have people in learning about it. And I wonder, just generally speaking, um, other West Virginia businesses, I wonder if this could be kind of a model of how to move forward, like collaborating with another West Virginia-based business or trying to market to the younger generation or working with a fellow artist. I'm just I'm just thinking out loud here if if post-COVID if that might be a clever business model. Yeah I mean Blanco back in the day the company had an in-house designer and then for years uh, it didn't and I believe it was in 2017 they hired these two, uh, two designers, Andrew Schaefer and Emma Walters. I think it's important to mention them because they just came up with some really creative designs. Their expertise was in architectural lighting and other art glass designs. And they just had some very creative pieces. And I think just, um, I think I mentioned in the piece that excitement about having an in-house designer again kind of drummed up excitement about you know, Blanco being on an upward trajectory, especially after the bankruptcy that they experienced. But Emma and Andrew moved out west and left Blanco last year, and, and so I think they were the company was looking for another way to to solicit designs and to to come up with fresh stuff um, with existing talent in the state. And there is a lot of talent here. I don't have to tell you. I know it's like it's such a yeah, there's a lot. There are a lot of amazing artists here, and then, so yeah, I think like Blanco's story is so interesting. You know, they've they've been around, they've been in their Milton location for a hundred years, and whenever I first saw news of the pandemic, like they weren't too far from my mind. That place just really, it's a really special place. It just kind of sticks with you. Um, the the guys that make this glass are just so warm and funny and, and quirky. They make glass in a way that not too many places do anymore. And, you know, the mold for the Flatwoods Monster, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, it was made by the um, master craftsman who, using a mallet and chisel, carved it out of a piece of local wood, you know, just really like... Those sort of details, I think, are what make it so distinctive. That was freelance reporter Molly Bourne. We've posted a link to her article for the Washington Post on our website, wvpublic.org.
We'd like to close out our show today by remembering one of our colleagues at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Mountain Stage Chief Engineer Francis Fisher passed away earlier this month at the age of 79. Fisher was, for a lack of a better way of putting it, the man behind the curtain on the show. But what most listeners don't know is that Fisher was responsible for building West Virginia Public Broadcasting's network as we all know it today. To those who knew him well, Fisher was truly a unique human being, a man of wit and kindness who helped build up WVPB and its flagship show, Mountain Stage. Dave Mistich has this remembrance. If you ever had the chance to see Mountain Stage in person, the playful pre-show banter between hosts Larry Gross and Chief Engineer Francis Fisher was the signal that things were rolling. Yeah! Yeah! That's what I'm... Francis, come on. Hey, Francis. Come on, Francis. Now, that was great. That was the best I've ever heard. You know, they were really good. You're damn right they were good. But. But. What do you mean, but? But. They gotta do it again. All right. I thought we could talk him into doing one this time. Okay, one more, even bigger. One, two, three, yeah! Fisher and Gross recited that gag hundreds upon hundreds of times. Talk to Fisher's friends and family, and you'll hear him described in many different ways. Funny, brilliant, mischievous, adventurous, a technophile. But the most repeated characteristic, a lifelong learner who approached almost everything in his own unique way. Born in Ascadero, California, Fisher spent his formative years in Parkersburg, West Virginia, before graduating high school in Morgantown. Fisher's daughter, Emma Pepper, says after high school, her father's career started off rather unconventionally. He tried to go up to Fairmont State uh, first for college and was there for a very short while uh, before um, they sent him a letter I think, or maybe they sent it to his mother and father, and it had seven reasons why they didn't want him in that school anymore, (laughs) including that he was running poker games out of his room. After a stint in the Navy where he learned the engineering trade, Fisher quickly got to work in the radio industry. Here's Mountain Stage co-founder and former executive producer Andy Ridenour. When he got off the Navy ship and came back to West Virginia, he knew he, he... He wanted to get into broadcasting and he went back up to New York City and walked into NBC and got a job. That's unheard of. You just don't, from nowhere, from no radio experience at all, just his engineering experience, he walked in and got a job at NBC. While in New York City in the mid to late 60s, Fisher and his wife lived in the bustling neighborhood of Greenwich Village. Ridenauer says that experience put Fisher right next to cultural icons of the time. He had a great time. You know, he ended up in, in a lot of situations, you, you know, Bridget Bardot, Muhammad Ali, you know, all these people that came into, he was, he was a, a, the, the, the studio engineer for Long John Noble. I mean, all this stuff, the experiences that he had there, most of us in the business couldn't work our way there. And he just walked in and got it. After leaving New York City, Fisher made his way back to West Virginia, first landing at WDE in Elkins. That's where he first met Larry Gross, who had moved to the area as the first artist-in-residence for the National Endowment for the Arts. He was kind of going back to the land uh, with his wife, Sandy, and their little girl, Amanda, who was very small. And I fell in with him because I I was doing a program there, which brought me to promotion to the radio station and stuff. And him being the engineer, we kind of 
hit it off right away, became, became friends. As West Virginia Public Radio was emerging as a statewide network in the late 70s, Fisher was the mastermind behind linking the stations together. Then-General Manager Rich Eisworth says it was a remarkable undertaking, something ahead of its time and especially meaningful, with limited resources and hardscrabble conditions. Francis, um, like so many engineers, never really got as much credit publicly as he deserved. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a part of the heart and soul of that organization. Pepper says she came to learn that over the course of her dad's career, he had an almost tongue-in-cheek approach to his work. Whenever he started a new job, he would rewire everything so that only he would know how to make everything work. And that's how he he enjoyed it and he got himself a little bit of insurance with his job uh, in that way. Once the network of West Virginia Public Radio stations came online, Fisher's work never stopped. Broadcasting requires constant maintenance, and he spent much of his time making sure the signal was working. Here's Fisher's eldest daughter, Amanda Fredrickson. Anytime we traveled, we con- we always had the radio station on because he wanted to make sure at the time that all of the towers were working wherever um, we were going. But as the network grew, station managers wanted to create programming to scale up the audience. It was then that Fisher, Ridenauer, and Gross put their talents together to create Mountain Stage. Ridenauer and Gross credit Fisher on the front end of things. First piece of advice he gave me was to hire, hire Larry to be the host. And it was all great after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, as Andy has said many times, we, we were fortunate to have a team that every person had a certain knowledge and we didn't step on each other's toes, but we were happy to hear from the other person if they, if they had a suggestion. We were lucky in that, that, uh, you know, many times you don't find a combination that works. For 37 plus years, he manned the mixing board for almost every show, dialing in the sound for everyone from the band, Bela Fleck, R.E.M., Warren Zevon, and Buckwheat Zydeco. Mountain Stage guitarist and Fisher's de facto sidekick on the mixing board, Michael Lipton, says throughout the years, Fisher dealt with a gamut of personalities, with musicians and tour personnel, oftentimes trying to usurp Fisher's authority in running the technical aspects of the show. While he was, you know, the man behind the scenes, for sure, once you were in the booth, you were in his world and his lair, and you knew it, and everybody knew it. And he would, you know, depending on the personality of the person who was with with the particular group, he either didn't have to uh, uh, stress or force the issue, or he did. And and uh, he would suss out people very quickly. Nearly a decade ago, I was working on a radio documentary to mark the 30th anniversary of Mountain Stage. Over the course of a year, I was lucky enough to sit down with dozens of people who had been part of the show, from those on staff to a wide range of performers and others who played a role in its success. 
When I got Fisher in the studio to tell me his part of the story, I got the impression he wasn't at all interested in waxing philosophical. His man-behind-the-curtain persona was in full effect. Fisher was wildly engaging despite his reservations. Most importantly, he never stopped making sure things sounded good. In 1972, are these levels okay? Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Yeah, turn it down. Hey, hey, turn it down a little more. This is weird, isn't it? Well, well, see, that's part of the deal. I don't like doing this stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and you're in control of it, and it's it makes me nervous. Well, anyhow, in 1972. Gross says that's exactly the kind of person Fisher was. Francis never wanted to do that. We tried to get him to do interviews and other things so that he could be recognized, but he really didn't want it. It wasn't false modesty. He just didn't want it. Pepper says her dad was, as much as anything, a person who reveled in humor, even at the end of his life. I remember when we told him um, that we were writing this proclamation for the uh, West Virginia Public Broadcasting Week, Francis Fisher Week. And I said, um, Larry is helping to write it. And the first thing he said to me was, is it funny? And I said, yes, it's funny. It's, it's good. It has stuff about your life, but it also has humor in it. And that was important to him uh, to be able to find humor um, in most situations. Francis Fisher mixed more than 960 episodes of Mountain Stage. In April 2020, he was inducted into the West Virginia Broadcasters Hall of Fame. I've always been Briar Rabbit in the Briar Patch. Uh, Broadcasting is my nest, it's my home, it's what I love to do. I've known since I was 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 years old exactly what I wanted to do with my life, and here it is. Francis Fisher, chief engineer for Mountain Stage, and so much more than that, was 79. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, the network that Fisher helped build, I'm Dave Mistich. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week is provided by Dinosaur Burps, Blue Dot Sessions, Genova, and RK Mitch. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens, and Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia 
with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.